Dad, why are you so careful to use proper English when you write reviews? Nobody reads them. What's the point? I always make sure to write correctly, even when making an episode of Superhero Rewind. No one will read the script, so it may not seem to matter whether mistakes are made as long as sentences sound grammatically correct and the content is adequate, since these reviews are heard and not seen. But I remain professional regardless. I use commas when they're appropriate, I correct my spelling when it's underlined, and I always... Always italicize the names of the films I reference. It's important to always practice using correct punctuation, spelling, and general mechanics of proper English, no matter what you're writing. Because when you regularly write incorrectly, you fall into bad habits. Remember, the right attitude is to always do things the way you know are right, whether anyone else will see it or not. Taking pride in your work is never pointless. It's true in writing, and it's true in crime-fighting. Gosh, Dad, you're right. The following is an in-depth story analysis. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before watching this review. Return of the Cape Crusaders was a really emotional experience for me the first time I saw it. It really was. You can laugh if you want to. It was as if someone had made a movie just for me, and one I didn't know I had been waiting for my whole life. I know, it's a silly direct-to-video animated movie, and it's based on a campy 60s TV show that, for decades, hardcore Batman fans and Hollywood alike tried to forget, as Batman slowly returned to its darker, grittier roots in comics, in film, and then finally on television. But to my dismay, it was more than just another run-of-the-mill animated Batman movie, and more than a simple tribute to the 66 show. It was something really special, and it gave me a completely unique but wonderfully familiar experience. Adam West Batman was a show that, for decades, fans thought would never see home video release, let alone any sort of new material. But finally, rights issues were ironed out, DC started to get off its high horse and embrace the wide diversity of different flavors of Batman, 60s Batman merchandise was licensed out to a couple companies, and it was no longer that buried, campy show that ruined Batman for all those years. Call it a cash grab call it exploiting nostalgia, but I took it as a sign that something really positive had finally happened with Batman. The era of competition was over. It was no longer about what kind of Batman is selling right now. There was so much of it, and there was such a massive fan base all across the spectrum, from colorful and campy to relentlessly dark and serious, that it could all be out there simultaneously and it could all make money. If Professor Xavier had been preaching peaceful coexistence for different kinds of Batman stories, he would have seen his dream realized. I certainly did. I love a more serious Batman, but I also grew up with and have always sworn by what I see as a brilliant satire in Adam West Batman series, and one doesn't have to exclude the other, especially now that the general perception of Batman is closer to what it was at its inception. As a kid, I always had campy and serious Batman at the same time, and that's finally become the norm. You had Batman the Brave and the Bold at the same time as the Nolan Batman movies. You have Lego Batman at the same time as Ben Affleck in Batman vs. Superman. It was a big deal for me when DC published a series of Batman 66 comic books. Stories that were faithful to the series in tone, vernacular, and storytelling, but which could get bigger in scope, create a tighter continuity, and add a little more character depth without losing the spirit of what the show was. 
It was a bigger deal for me when DC finally made the series available for purchase, and I've discussed and analyzed it at length in my top 10 Batman 66 episodes videos. But Return of the Cape Crusaders was an even bigger deal, because it created the ultimate tribute to the history of Batman and Batman fandom, through the lens of the series that made it so popular in the first place. I couldn't believe it was happening when it was announced, but I honestly didn't expect too much from it. I figured we'd get a fun throwaway romp with some references to the show and the general aesthetic, the costumes, the car, the Batcave, but it wouldn't really be Adam West Batman. I expected a love letter. What I got was a sonata. I'm still pinching myself, expecting to wake up. I realize not everyone will have the same experience with this that I did, and I'm sure my words ring hyperbolic and fanboyish to some, but I had a really personal experience with this movie that's difficult to put into words. A feeling I thought would fade with repeat viewings, but after at least six, it has not. When I watch this movie, I'm six years old again. But it also speaks to the adult Batman fan in me, the one that spent a ridiculous amount of time thinking about the psychology, the philosophy, and the mythology of the character. This is, with minor exceptions, absolutely a genuine, long episode of that series that also manages to lovingly poke fun at it and acknowledge the long history of the character that came after. It is absurd, ridiculous, and not to be taken seriously on a story level, just like every episode of the TV show. And I wouldn't call it a deep meditation, but it's smarter satire than the series series ever was. It comments on some of the same major themes the show did, over-reliance on technology, sexism, government apathy, rampant consumerism, public education, and the evils of the very medium it was broadcast on. It also comments on the show itself, somehow without ever taking me out of its preposterous world or feeling disingenuous, like Turtles Forever sometimes did with its overly goofy depiction of the 1987 Ninja Turtles. And it comments on the evolving cultural perceptions of Batman in the real world. There's so much reverence for the series and for Batman history here, but the movie doesn't just prove the people making it have watched the show and know stuff about Batman. It proves that it understands that show, and that there's more to say with this version, despite how stale it felt to viewers at the time after only three seasons, and how many decades have passed since then. It's consistently funny, it's often surprising, and the quality of animation goes far beyond what it has to for this material. It's incredibly polished, well-detailed, and visually stunning. The movie is inspired by the design of the Batman 66 comics, and it translates beautifully to animation. I saw this in the theater at a Fathom event and was shocked by how big-screen-worthy it is. And it does what the comics do so well. It imagines Batman 66 on a big-screen budget, but it never takes it too far in a cartoonish direction. Before the first issue was released, Jeff Parker said in an interview that his intention was to limit himself to what he thought could be accomplished on a big-screen movie, with a massive budget, but never go so far that it's inconceivable it could have been accomplished in the 1960s. This would have been an impossibly expensive film in live-action, and I don't know how great some of the visual effects could have looked in 69 or 70, particularly the Bat Rocket, and putting dozens of Adam West on screen at the same time, but I think this movie, more or less, does follow Parker's rule, and that gives it a lot of authenticity. It takes advantage of the animation medium, but it doesn't run away with itself either. It feels like what Simple Jr. would have done with nigh unlimited resources. If Simple could have shot a long tunnel exit from the Batcave with several different kinds of automatic gates that raise up, if he could have had a larger Batcave that included the dinosaur and the penny from the cave in the comics, and if he could have effectively sent Batman to space, he probably would have. In a way, it's the larger-than-life version the show created the best it could on the small screen, but more fully realized. 
Return of the Cape Crusaders hurt the Lego Batman movie for me a little, because a lot of what it does well, this did first, and some of it a bit better. That's also a celebration and tribute to Batman, and it's chock full of obscure characters and references, both obvious and deeper pulls, and weirdly, they have similar plots. Both are about Batman being a villain, and they're both about him creating a culture of dependence around him. The difference is, this Batman unwittingly becomes a villain, whereas Lego Batman arguably always was, until he sees the error of his ways. And Gotham's over-reliance on Batman in the 60s series, and here is more on the government and the citizens than it is on Batman, who doesn't create that social climate because of his ego or vanity, but out of selflessness and moral integrity. He stops every crime he can, not to take the glory from anyone else, but because he's good at it, has the resources, and eventually, because... For better or worse, nobody else can or dies, and they just get used to him doing everything for them. And that becomes a commentary on social apathy. I don't want to be unfair to the Lego Batman movie. These were developed around the same time, and Return of the Cape Crusaders just beat it to the punch on a lot of things. Whichever came out first was going to hurt my appreciation of the other, because I would have already seen certain gags or references, like, you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. Both movies have their Batman quote Michael Keaton. And I wasn't as giddy about it in the Lego Batman movie, because another Batman parody movie that is Batman but is also parroting Batman, crazy how often that's done and how well it can work, had already used that line. But then the context of it is more clever and more surprising in this. Batman is slowly going dark, losing his moral fiber, and taking advantage of his resources and his station. He puts on bat brass knuckles, something I could not believe I was seeing first time out, much less that I was okay with it, with this material. And he brutalizes his enemies, Joker, Riddler, and the Penguin. He says, you want to get nuts? not just because it's a recognizable reference, but because it is the perfect way to signal that after building to this moment through several scenes, gradually making us more and more suspicious of Batman's unusual behavior, he's gone completely over the edge, and this movie is willing to take real risks with the material. Then he has the famous Frank Miller line from Dark Knight Returns, This is an operating table, and I'm the surgeon. The light-hearted, innocent, does-no-wrong Batman is becoming more like the Batman we longed for for decades, and it's unnerving and wrong, but it's also hysterical. The Lego Batman movie is also about all the different kinds of Batman, but it's about rolling it all into one cartoonishly narcissistic version we'd never seen before, at least before the Lego movie. This is about contrasting 60s Batman with what came after and having fun with those extremes. Having Adam West turn into Frank Miller's Batman and say that line is fantastic and provocative. Of course, as he continues, he becomes a bona fide villain and not Miller's Batman, because a lot of people see the the Dark Knight Returns is the definitive turning point in changing the perspective of Batman from campy to dark vigilante. And some fans even hoped Adam West would reprise the role of Batman as the older, darker Batman, returning to crime fighting after years of retirement in a big screen adaptation, like the old era transitioning to the new through the same actor. The comics hadn't been like the Adam West show in a long time, but that book got everyone's attention and was a major inspiration on the 89 film, despite ultimately bearing little resemblance to that at all. It's too bad we lost the Batman riding on a horse scene. 
This is a brilliant way to update 60s Batman. You make a movie that references and is influenced by what came after, but in almost every other way could have been made for the series. The comics do this too. Of course, the 60s show couldn't have adapted villains that were created later, but the comics reimagined them to fit that world, and they feel like they could have been there if only they had existed, like Bane as a luchador wrestler with Riddler as his manager. The movie cleverly never breaks the rules, even when it feels like it is. It's not about changing what the 60s show was to match a dark version of Batman, and I appreciate that it's still set in the 60s, it's about acknowledging other versions, playing with them, and then putting the toys back in the box at the end, perhaps to say, yes, we've gotten past this, but the theater of the absurd is still a lot of fun, and on a larger stage and with new blood making it, there's still untapped potential in the formula. Because this story does stick to the formula, and it doesn't go against the series' Bible, really, it's expertly crafted to subvert expectations, to make the audience uncomfortable about what it might be doing to Adam West's wholesome Batman, and then to return to status quo the way the show always did, but in a surprisingly satisfying way. It might partly be because I love this material and I'm so impressed by how much of the lesser talked about tropes and patterns are integrated, but I wasn't let down when the toys are put back in the box. The point of the film is not to change what 60s Batman is, but to celebrate it and satirize it in the context of 50 more years of Batman history. And so cool, it came out on the anniversary of the show. It's astounding we got great movies for both Star Trek and 60s Batman on their 50th anniversaries. And this gives you a film with broad appeal. It's for fans of 60s Batman, but it's also for people who don't know that show, or maybe to a degree, don't even like it. Because as much reverence as it has, it's easy to enjoy this as a parody of that show. The Dark Batman stuff makes fun of the camp, and then the camp is fully embraced by the end, but always in a self-aware way, in a tongue-in-cheek way, and perhaps more clearly self-aware than the 60s show sometimes was. It feels like a really niche movie. As I said, like it was made for someone with my very specific background and interests, and yet I've shown it to no one who didn't really like it, whether they know this show or even much about Batman. I would be fascinated to do a study on whether a random sample set of people prefers this to the Lego Batman movie, because I have talked to people who didn't care for that at all. And again, I love that too, and I'll have plenty of nice things to say about it when I get there, but I really think this might be the superior of the two films, and I don't think that's just my love for Adam West talking. As dark as the movie, for 60s Batman, seems to get, it never goes against the spirit of the show, and it handles Batman closer to the way the pilot did, exposing the disturbing implications of what this super-rich guy does on his off time. Everything is great in Gotham City as long as nothing ever happens to Batman. He really does believe in his principles, would never take advantage of his power and prestige, and always sets the right example without fail with the exception maybe of his double standard when it comes to female criminals. Batman handles Catwoman exactly like he does in the series, and with most beautiful but nefarious women. He treats her as inherently pure and always capable of rehabilitation, no matter what she's done. In the original show, I was never totally sure if that was a joke about how unprogressively men treat women on television, or if it was just doing what TV of the time did because those were the sensibilities, like was often seen on Star Trek. I think it's more of the former than the latter, but that's definitely what it is here, with Catwoman complaining that it's not nice for Batman to rub in his superior masculinity. That's not going 
going too far. The show would totally have included that line. And the fact that Batman is so easily seduced and deceived by her, like Ava and Dwight in Sin City, a dame to kill for, it's making fun of men at the time for looking at women that way. But a guy who dresses up like a bat and is a duly deputized agent of the law, rather than just wearing a police uniform, brands all his stuff and makes himself the center of law enforcement in Gotham, no matter how incorruptible he is, looks like a powder keg waiting to explode if somehow this happens in real life. But because this is a ridiculous fiction, you never really have to worry about that happening. We just occasionally poke fun of the fact that this cannot work in any reality resembling ours. What if Batman gets hurt? What if Batman dies? What if he quits? What if he snaps? In this movie, we explore that last one, and we skirt that line between deconstruction and parody. Are we getting a glimpse at this Batman's dark side, a stalwart role model who isn't supposed to have one? Or is Catwoman's catnip, enhanced by the Joker's gas, just making him slowly lose his morality, rather than bringing out something that's already in him? It's completely ambiguous about it, and that's a good thing. Both reads are valid, but it doesn't ultimately matter, because A, Batman always wins. B, it takes a mind-altering drug to make him go bad. Nothing else will do it. C, there's nothing to worry about because Batman has an antidote for anything like this, because, circling back now, A, Batman always wins. And if you're saying, then who cares? Nothing's at stake and there is no conflict, I say to you... It's just not that kind of story. I talked about how this is a parody of movie serials, where there's a cliffhanger at the end of every chapter, but you always know the good guy will get out of it when I analyzed that series. And again, on first viewing, it was fun to wonder if the movie was breaking out of that formula and then gratifying when it didn't. I guess I was open to that while I was watching it, but was convinced by the end that that's not the thing to do with this material. Challenging it is more what Brave and the Bold is for. Deep down, Adam West Batman might be really jaded, but won't allow himself to do anything about it, or even really feel it, because of the pressure to keep the city together single-handedly. He might secretly hate Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara, he definitely hates Chief O'Hara, for their incompetence and stupidity. He might be sick of doing everything for everyone else, and maybe even recognizes his own hypocrisy. He's always preaching not taking the easy way out but if everyone depends on him, he's inviting them to do exactly that. And then he'd also be an egomaniac, because the world really does revolve around him, and he really is better than everyone at everything, maybe just because they all got complacent and stopped using their own brains. And if he allowed himself to start thinking that way, it might lead to his thinking he deserved to really take over, considering he basically already owns Gotham anyway. Just before the big fight where he's finally returned to normal with Alfred's antidote to his antidote to the catnip antidote Catwoman and Robin tried to use on him in the Batcave, I love writing synopses for this stuff. Batman says he thought he wore his Batsuit to strike fear into the hearts of criminals, but that really, I just crave attention. But it makes no difference, because this Batman will never truly succumb to his dark side, even if he has one, and so he effectively doesn't. Whether the catnip is tapping into something deep-rooted in his psyche or not, I love the gradual path to darkness he takes. It doesn't just slowly start getting meaner and then evil. There's a process unique to this Batman that's not generic at all, and it's weirdly well thought out. First, after the giant TV dinner death trap, Batman thinks he's immune to Catwoman's poison because of the strength of his moral fiber. There's a subtle sense that something's off, the way he says in standard punny fashion, I found it distasteful that they got away. Something more vengeful there than usual. 
Then, he fires Alfred for not keeping Aunt Harriet away from his study, where the secret Batcave entrance is. He's beginning to lose his tolerance for incompetence, and it's like he's seeing all the holes in his world the audience does. He shouldn't have a secret identity. Nothing about his life should work, but it does, because he always does the right thing, and so reality coalesces to his will. Then he gets crazy violent on the villains at the space station when he and Robin use the never-before-seen Bat Rocket to get to it. Also in this, before the Lego Batman movie did it. One of the most perversely funny things in the movie to me is one of the words that pops up on the screen in that scene, fracture. I lost it. He's starting to let himself be corrupted by his power as he takes advantage of people's expectations of him. He's not following the rules, and it's like the universe is unraveling around everyone. I mentioned earlier that despite this shocking scene, the film still doesn't break the rules. Before the climactic battle on top of Penguin's blimp, we learn that Joker, Riddler, and Penguin planned this all as one big elaborate distraction, because of course they knew exactly what would happen if they hit Batman with Catwoman's catnip. That's a classic 60s Batman movie move. You go through a whole complicated adventure only to find out it was all a ruse to get Batman off the track and nothing you saw really matters. Except here it does, because Batman himself becomes the villain for the middle portion of the movie. Before Batman got his hands on the replication ray, which he puts in the Batcave to keep out of the wrong hands, but it turns out his hands are the wrong hands, it turns out the villains used it on themselves, and so it's been their duplicates Batman has been chasing the whole time, with a way grander scheme than the real ones. Batman thinks they want to duplicate the whole Earth so they have their own planet to rule. But it turns out the bad guys just want to go on a big crime spree like they always do, because they're not actually breaking the rules. They're not allowed to be any more ambitious than stealing priceless goods and irreplaceable artwork. I love that that's still all any of this is about. It's hilarious. So Batman didn't violently and semi-permanently bust up his villains. He did it to their duplicates, who are molecularly unstable anyway, and will eventually wind up as piles of colored dust, just like the dehydrated pirates in the 66 movie. And in the final phase of his transformation, Batman goes from moral authority to King of Gotham, abusing his power to the nth degree. After he gets rid of Robin like he did Alfred, he decides it's not enough to play judge and jury, it's time for him to do everything himself, like he's felt like he's had to do anyway. So he makes Gordon and O'Hara take off their uniforms, and he replaces them with replicas of himself, using the duplication ray he kept for safekeeping. When Gordon thought his were the safest hands, saying they don't deserve to be in charge of anything. It's hilarious because he's not wrong, and the TV series regularly called attention to how useless and incompetent the police force is, just never on the scale. And I never thought it went far enough. There's a pair of episodes called The Devil's Fingers and The Dead Ringers, where all hell breaks loose when Bruce and Dick are both out of town, but they come back too early for us to see just how much of a mess Gordon and O'Hara would have made of things. Batman doesn't just put himself in charge, he duplicates himself hundreds of times and replaces everyone. The mayor, Mater D's, TV stars, everyone deciding they're all inept at their jobs and that the city shouldn't just revolve around him as it does, but it should be all him. He even has the classic first Gotham, then the world moment and an evil villain laugh. He becomes what he's always preached against, a man with too much power, completely corrupted by it, like he avoided in His Honor the Penguin, Dishonor the Penguin when he resisted running for mayor and declined the nomination for president. It's important that Batman isn't hit with the catnip and then immediately takes over the city. It's more 
more engaging to see him slowly become literally a Batman villain. But more than that, it illustrates hysterically the paradox of the perfect Batman. He is careful not to take too much power, even though everyone trusts him implicitly, and yet that trust gives him almost unlimited power. He simply never abuses it like Superman, who could conquer the Earth, but tries to prove that power can be used for good and doesn't have to be a corrupting force. I suppose Batman gets his power and his inability to fail from his goodness, though. And so if he used his resources and stature for evil, the world would stop conforming to his will, and he would be defeated by something good. Which is exactly what happens here. The rules are never broken. Good must triumph over evil in 60s Batman, and so if Batman is evil, he loses. And then the impossibly perfect Batman returns to save the day. I also think the hundreds of Batman taking over is a joke about how insanely popular Batman was in the 60s and is today. How Batman seemed to completely envelop the culture when the show was a phenomenon, and how now it's much the same way. It's a joke about how Batman is oddly universal. Everyone wants to be Batman because the idea is anyone with enough conviction and money could be him, and he's great at everything because he's Batman. That line is even in the movie. The answer to, how did Batman do that, is always, because he's Batman. And he becomes a great 60s villain. Give a narcissistic sociopath who is talented at everything a gun that makes copies of himself, who puts his branding everywhere so all you can see is Batman, just like the rabid consumerism of Batman in reality. And then it's kind of a meta-satire since this movie itself is part of all that. This is the Batman who takes advantage of his power of celebrity. In this world, he's like he is in ours. One of the most recognized and influential figures there is. Let's get to the more basic mechanics and execution now, shall we? The title. Some of you will expect me to complain that Return of the Cape Crusaders isn't a great title because it's not descriptive of anything in the actual story. The Cape Crusaders are returning to our TVs, but not to Gotham. They never left. If I complained about this in Batman Returns, I'd better groan about it here. Yeah, it's generic, and I do wish it was called something that reflects what actually happens in the movie. But then its sequel does do that, and it's equally generic. Batman versus Two-Face. Batman does fight Two-Face, but it doesn't give you any sense of the kind of Batman movie you're watching. The problem with that title is that it's not indicative of the series. This at least kind of has that. Cape Crusaders is lighter and cheesier than Dark Knight, and it's used in the show a lot. It's a commercially viable title. A Batman 66-esque episode title like High Diddle Riddle or Fine Finny Fiends might not move product as well, and as faithful to the series as this is, I think it was marketed to try to appeal to as many people as humanly possible, regardless of your interest or lack thereof in the show. But no, I don't love the title, and I wish Return was always reserved for sequels in which a character comes back from being someplace else. If this did have an Adam West Batman episode title, I wonder what it might have been. Too many Batmen spoil the soup? Batman is a bad man? Special guest villain, Batman. The dastardly deceptive duplication of one Batman. Batman loses it, Catwoman finds it. Yeah, I just can't imagine those on a DVD box. Most of the voice acting in the movie is fantastic. Adam West is showing his age and sometimes slurs his speech a little, but it's worth it to have him finally bring his Batman back, and he's an excellent voice actor, bringing the same level of intensity, energy, and humor into the performance that he did in front of the camera. I love his perverse evil Batman, where the ostensibly humble Batman becomes arrogant and sanctimonious. And I think his age actually works in his favor during those scenes. He hasn't lost his charm or his grasp of the absurd, and still sounds 
sounds like the only person who could successfully sell his dialogue. Burt Ward hardly sounds any different than he did when he was a kid, and he sounds just as eager and boyish as he should. Jeff Bergman's Joker is spot on 90% of the time. He's taken great care to learn Cesar Romero's cadence and unique pronunciation of certain words. The same with Wally Wingert, who is brilliant casting. Wingert is an expert sound-alike artist and has a history with the Riddler, playing one of the more sadistic versions of the character in the Arkham games. He was also good friends with Frank Gorshin, and it's really cool for him that he was brought in to do that character right. And William Salyers does a fine penguin if this were any cartoony take on that character, but he doesn't sound like Burgess Meredith at all. To be fair, though, that's the villain the script seems least interested in, and he's the most generically written of the four. The major weak link here, I'm sorry to say, is Julie Newmar. It's great that she's reprising her role along with Weston Ward, and of course I love her, but her line delivery often sounds awkward and unnatural. I don't know that the problem is that she sounds too old, so much as that she's giving a different performance. She sometimes sounds like she's reading a storybook to little kids before she sounds genuinely seductive and duplicitous. It's like nobody told her the nature of this project. The script nails the character's voice, but her interpretation is way off. She's doing a Saturday morning cartoon reading. She sounds like she's in an episode of Star Trek The Animated Series. After hearing Lee Merriweather's performance in the sequel, who plays a different character than Catwoman, but amusingly does wind up wearing a cat suit, I think she would have given a better performance. And it pains me to say that, because Numar is my favorite, and she is characterized as specifically the Numar version, but Merriweather also would have been the most appropriate choice because she played Catwoman in the movie, the only other time she teamed up with these other specific villains. And there is some homage to that movie with the villains. Clearly, its popularity is why these four were chosen. I like the relatively subtle references we get to the 66 film. People reduced to colored dust, like I mentioned before, the penguin being the captain of a large vessel the villains travel in. There it was a penguin submarine, here it's a penguin blimp. And I like that we don't go to the really obvious places. There's no reference to some days you just can't get rid of a bum until the credits, and there's no shark repellent, which does show up in the Lego Batman movie. But I'm not knocking it there, it's pretty funny. It would have been nice if the villains called themselves the United Underworld again and treat this like a true sequel to that movie. Especially because this movie is an improvement of that one in a lot of ways. I was nervous when the rock band, the Ho-Daddies, turn out to be the four of them at the beginning, and then Bruce and Dick go down the line as they're watching them on television, describing each of them for the audience, like they do in Batman the Movie with the closed-circuit TV. But I quickly forget that it's taking cues from the original film, even though it keeps doing it. These same four villains have another super science ray gun that ultimately turns people into piles of sand, which they use to create chaos so they can perform their criminal caper unfettered. Catwoman seduces Batman and has feelings for him herself, but refuses to turn away from a life of crime by the end. Though she plays both sides in this movie, double-crossing the other villains and helping Batman take them down at the end. The villains lure Batman to a hideout, like in the first movie, when Batman finds them on a space station, but here it's just to distract him rather than to kill him. I love Batman's logic, where he evokes Occam's razor. The simpler of two possibilities is that they're not even on the planet. And at the end, there's a big fight on the Penguin's portable fortress. It's not the same movie, but it includes a lot of the same elements. And that's smart, because a lot of people have only seen that movie, since it was the only 60s Batman production available on video for the longest time. 
It gets away from being a carbon copy by bringing in a lot of tropes and story points from the actual TV show. If you're familiar with that, it plays as clever references and helps it to feel like it belongs in this continuity. If you're not, this stuff is fun for all the reasons it was in the show. You won't predict it because it wasn't in the movie, and it gives you a feature-length representation of this world that's more faithful to the show than the original movie was. The story is more tightly woven than that. It's not padded meandery, and it successfully translates the show's formula to a feature in a way the movie didn't. Structurally, it's built around death traps, just like in the series. It's effectively a three-part episode, and there were a couple of those in the series. Each act ends with a death trap that serve as a cliffhanger into the next act, and the first and second act plot points are delivered shortly thereafter. The first death trap is Batman and Robin in a giant TV dinner, which they escape by using the acid of the lemon tart to burn through their ropes. And shortly after that, we discover that Batman's behavior has been altered. The second death trap sees Batman himself is the villain, in which Catwoman and Robin... Hey, there's another alternate title. Escape from the nuclear silo with an anti-radiation spray Robin conveniently thought to use before they got there. Which, by the way, I don't buy even in this silly context, because it doesn't actually solve the problem. We saw a giant plume of fire, not just radiation. But anyway, they fight Batman shortly after that, and when Batman is normal again, we get the second act plot point. The bad guys have been at large all along, and Batman brass-knuckled their doppelgangers. Of course, we've got all the obvious, well-known stuff from the show. Sound effects, words on the screen, holy whatever Batman. But I'd like to list some of the tropes and motifs I noticed that you'd have to really know the show to bring in. Bruce and Dick using fishing as an excuse for where they've been going with the bat phone rings. Chief O'Hara is an idiot. The Batman duplicate saying Begora is funny every time. Catwoman in disguise to infiltrate some place. Here, the penitentiary. Alfred in disguise, and Alfred showing up to save the day at the end. Bad guys tying people up with automatically deployed colorful streamers. A villain with his or her own somebody mobile. Catwoman has a Catmobile. Catwoman wanting to kill Robin. Catwoman tragically and ostensibly falling to her death, with Batman watching in terror. Batman stopping everything to give PSAs. And it gets a lot of the gadgets in, too. The Batzooka, Batshield, the parachute out the back of the Batmobile, but not the parachute pickup service, unfortunately. Bat sleep spray, and there's even a reference to the Bat Research Shelf, which has come a long way since last we saw it. Now it's two whole sets of encyclopedias, and Batman has actually put it in a computer. There are a few things that are oddly missing or are different for no reason I'm aware of. Most of this is really minor, but the movie is so authentic they stood out to me. There are never vocals in the Batman theme song. The jazzy soundtrack is perfectly authentic, but the villain's individual melodies are never used. There's no narrator, but there is a news announcer doing a decent Semple Jr. impression, so I wish it was there. The Batmobile, of course, is picture-perfect, but the Batcopter is totally redesigned, and not as colorful as the other vehicles. And why is the atomic pile redesigned and renamed as the nuclear silo? That seems like an evolution of a device, like Batman is improving on things. But besides the encyclopedia in the computer, nothing else has really changed in this. Some other small criticisms. Most of the ways the movie comments on the show that, remember, it's trying to be a part of don't go too far for me. But the homosexual innuendo with Aunt Harriet does. That's an update that feels too contemporary. And I think part of the reason it bugs me is because it's a generic, broad thing people like to make fun of Batman for. It's not specific to this series. Batman spends all his time with a kid in tights and he doesn't have a girlfriend. And the name of one of them is Dick. They must be gay lovers. 
It's never said explicitly, but it's clear what Aunt Harriet is talking about. When Bruce and Dick say they're going fishing, she thinks they're running away to make out or something. It's weird that she's just now bringing it up to Alfred, and I also just don't think it's funny. The movie has to end on it, too. It's a weak note to leave off on, which is unfortunate because the comedy is otherwise consistently good. If you like puns and impossible mysteries solved because one word leads Batman to think of another word, which leads him to prize goose eggs or whatever. I also don't love the double climax. It's necessary to tie up loose ends, and it's exactly what the series would do. But the fight with the sprung villains and the multiple Batmans, sorry, Batmen, is way more entertaining than the fight on the blimp. And the last fight verges into Saturday morning cartoon territory, like Riddler winding up in a tutu and Joker's adventure at the circus, which ends in his being taken away by clowns in their own tiny paddy wagon. The extra villain cameos are fun, but it's a little awkward that none of them get any dialogue. What's King Tut doing there? Just hit him in the head and he's rehabilitated. That guy isn't responsible for any villainy he's ever committed. And these guys know that too, because next movie they're going to use King Tut and they're going to do precisely that. And while I could easily be made to understand why they would go fight on the good guy side, maybe it's just cathartic to punch a bunch of Batman, there's no conversation about it because they're not voice cast. So they all just fall in line as an army for Robin and Catwoman. It's odd that there's not a scene about why they agree to do this. Batman Return of the Cape Crusaders is a thoughtful and passionate update of the Batman 66 series and a heartfelt celebration of the history of Batman. It's smart satire, it's clever parody, and it pushes this material as far as it can, in flirting with taking it dark and in commenting on the very material it's adding to, without ruining the spirit of that material. It kept me guessing first time out, and it keeps me laughing every time I see it. What I expected to be a fun display disposable homage turned out to be the great 66 Batman movie that never was, and of course never could have been. This is one of the biggest surprises for me in superhero movies, and I cannot help but give it a 4 out of 4. Thanks a lot for listening, folks. Hope you are enjoying the 12 Days of Superhero Rewind. If you would like to support the channel and Superhero Rewind, go to patreon.com slash geekvolution, and for just $2 a month, you can get early access, three days early, to regular episodes of Superhero Rewind. You can also get access to Geekvolution After Dark, Maya and Eric's twice-a-month uncensored talk show, and at the $10 tier, you can become a Patreon producer. And I'd like to say thanks to all of our producers right now, including Dylan Mush. Yellow, Nick Mana, Eamon Singleton, Cletus Winslow, Remy LeBlanc, Derek Jacob, The Day Ghost, Michael Gulick, Magpie's Nest Productions, Kareem Roberts, Lotten Underground, Michael Mark Micheletti, Carl Maxi, Dimitri J, John Johnson, Jacob Schneider, Nathan Hanford, Aram Zangana, Joey Crouch, Sartage Govind Singh, Ethan, Guidi, Caleb, Malik Myers, Lone Wolf Jedi of Gotham, Chewbacca's Lover, David Crabtree, Simeon Scott, Justin Hayes, Marie Flowers, Clark Whitfield, Ian McKee, and Jeffrey Patron. And if you would like to request a movie to be reviewed on either Superhero Rewind or Science Fiction Rewind, you can pledge at the $50 tier. You can do that just one time or for as long as you would like to, and I will put those on the queue and get to them ASAP. I'm stoked to show you what I have been gifted to review on tomorrow's episode of the 12 Days of Superhero Rewind. In the meantime, thanks again for listening, and I am Captain Logan. 